pretty delightful <laughs> to see all of you. I want to take a moment. I, I will introduce myself at some point, but I, I want to start actually with just appreciating that we're here. Um, all of us, including me. And, and like really feeling, first of all, like what brought you here? Some people are like homing pigeons on Saturdays. They just come here. <laughs> I'm getting there <laughs> with this place. But really, you know, stepping back from, oh, I had a job to do in the Zendo or, you know, um, I should be here. I don't, it's good for me. And just like, what, what are all the pieces, you know, like, what are, what is, what are all the threads of karma in your life? And in the people that you come from in the myriad ways that we come from people, you know, so not just familially, but culturally and in all ways. And, and just to feel some appreciation of like, wow, lucky. I also want to appreciate what, what we have to do to get here. I think I was talking about this during the session of like what it takes, you know, physically to get here. And, and even, and also like the journey, the metaphoric journey through the obstacles. There's a lot of teaching in dominant culture anyway that says like, this is not worth doing. Please don't pay attention. Please don't be quiet. Please don't be still, you know? And so how awesome. <laughs> and maybe to um, give some credit to our true nature. That must be at least one of the ingredients that got us here. That was like, oh, you know what I need to do? And you go sit there all day and, and be present with the fullness of my life. And like, lift that one up. <laughs> um, mostly we'll be quiet today and, and I appreciate making that space for people and, you know, want to honor it. And I also, um, because the jewel of Sangha, because refuge in Sangha is really so important. And I think sometimes we can forget. Um, I want to just start with, but I have, I have a second instruction um, or offering. <laughs> I want to start with asking us to maybe just turn and say hello to one another and share our names just so we can see one another a little bit and uh, feel one another more presently and Here's the Dharma nugget of this. I wonder if when we do that, we can hold for ourselves and for the other person, whole worlds are there. Whole worlds are here. Whole worlds are there. While you're talking, while you're saying, my name is blah, blah. Okay? So give it a try. <laughs> and at least, at least two people, see if you can say hello to. <laughs> Thank you. How'd it go? <laughs> we tried that this week. So you might have heard that. You know, there were a lot of words in the Genjo Khan, <laughs> but we chanted, whole worlds are there. 
It is so, although, although things may look round or square, the other features of oceans and mountains are infinite in variety, whole worlds are there. And then it later, it, it's so not only around you, but also directly beneath your feet or in a drop of water. And I think maybe the most important encouragement, because that's written by Dogen Zenji, the founder of, of Soto Zen, this tradition that we practice at Brooklyn Zen Center. Can people hear me okay? Will you let me know, Anna? Would you be like, um, and, um, and then we just chanted his Hotsugan Man, so his, his vow, um, just so you know what that was. And you're like, wait, do I vow this? <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to say that part. I vow with all beings to wake up and become a Buddha and then let it go. That part really struck me today, that we can attain Buddhahood and let go of the attainment. Okay, I, now I'm, my name is Sarah. <laughs> my Dharma name is Dojin, which means path of love or path of relationship. And um, I, use, I use she and her pronouns. And I experience the gender binary as oppressive and, and violent, causing harm. And I also, yeah, I, I think I just keep saying this. I haven't figured out a shorter way to say it. I also like love being female and treasure it. It's maybe I haven't gotten to many times. I don't know. <laughs> um, and I'm one of the priests and teachers here. And this fall, because there's so many, can, can you, do you mind raising your hand if this is the first time you're sitting at Brooklyn Zen Center? Yeah, so good. I know, I'm always raising hand. Welcome. It's really wonderful. I wonder, I've, I've spent this week as I looked at the names list, like, what are the conditions? You know, what is it? How cool. Um, feel free to tell me if you'd like to, how you got here. Um, this fall, we've been focusing on uh, the, the practice, like the actual engagement in our bodies and in our lives of non-duality. And we've used that thing that we chanted in the service, Genjo Koan, as our root text to encourage us. I, I um, in college, I had the gift of, of learning that I have dyslexia, which is great because I had made it through a lot of stuff already. And I was old enough to not receive that as a you know, a harmful label. It was just like, oh, thank you. I explained some stuff. Um, I have auditory processing dyslexia, which is, which I've also noticed is, um, uh, I think I also have some gifts in the auditory processing, weirdly like both of those things. I think this happens for many of us, you know, the thing that like, well, that's weird, but actually it's like a gift and also maybe a challenge. Um, Music and sound and words like chants, like I eventually when I lived at Tassar, I could memorize all the chants, not through any effort, but just because of like the way sound lodges in my head, uh, music lodges in my head. I have friends who have learned this, and so they'll like walk by me and like sing a little bit of Madonna, and they'll be like, enjoy, because that's going to be with you all day. And I woke up this morning um, with Kendrick Lamar's Humble in my head. And it's just so, it's just here. Bitch, be humble, sit down, be humble, sit down, repeating. 
So I wanted to share that because I feel like it, it came uh, with you to me. <laughs> and I feel that. The, I know it's, I know he's not talking about Zazen, <laughs> but maybe he is. And we can, or maybe, yeah, maybe there are whole worlds, you know, in Kendrick Lamar's sit down and be humble and we can receive it in practice. Um, so this idea of non-duality is kind of, it, I, I have experienced over my life of practice, which um, goes back to my early 20s, and I'm now in my early 50s. Um, people bring up non-duality. Often, to me, it was quite a cerebral experience. Like, let's think about this cool idea. Um, and, I'm and more and more, I feel like, no, we need to know this. We need to know it. We need to know what it feels like. We need to practice this. And I feel very supported in the Dharma and in Zazen in particular to like learn what it means to, to be in non-duality. And, and, you know, and, and again, like, and then it's not easily expressed what that means, but we can find this encouragement for each of us to figure out like, what does it mean for me? And I was thinking recently about how I've encountered, before I encountered um, explicit teachings in the Buddha Dharma about duality, how I encountered um, dualistic thinking in the psychological world. And I was like, oh yeah. Um, I was remembering, because I did some graduate work and I have a master's degree in counseling psychology as well. I was remembering developmental psychology, which some of you, I mean, I feel like many of us encounter sometimes even in high school, you know, these different phases that are sort of helpful and sometimes kind of reductive. But this idea of black and white thinking, and it shows up in developmental psychology, it shows up in different times. And I was also more, I was reflecting on like, when has it showed up in my life as like a defining developmental phase, you know? Um, so I wanted to offer that lens. I wanted to offer a couple lenses. That's one of them that, um, and so in developmental psychology, there's usually around three. And those of you who hang out with smaller people, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about, that people get, most humans get kind of a little tight about things being this way or that way. And sometimes they get rigid, you know. Though, actually, when I think of this archetypally, like in a preschool, I can, what I picture is the gender binary showing up and kids being like, you can't wear that, you're not a blob, you know, which is sad. <laughs> so I feel sad saying. And I also feel compassion, you know. Um, one of the things that is a theme for me this fall is to realize that when dualistic thinking comes up, it's usually protecting. It, we're using it as a defense. We're making the world smaller because we can't tolerate how it's messy and complex. You know? So a three-year-old is a person, yesterday, for those who know Terrence and Natalie, I got to hang out with little Charlie. Oh yeah, so this is a three and a half month old being who's just like, he's still there, you know? No problem with duality whatsoever. <laughs> he's like, every, and he's also a particularly kind of joyful little guy. <laughs> like everything's good, he's like happy to be here. Not everybody is. Many small people are like, I don't really want to be here. <laughs> um, 
And, and so, but, you know, but then stuff comes in language and ideas and social, social, you know, like in, in ideas, but also in our bodies, we are, we take in social things and around three, I feel like we also start to have a really good sense of, we start to play around with good and bad and being accepted and not being accepted. And so we get the a rigidity can come when, because we're trying to figure out what the project is here. Like, what do people want from me? You know, what do these big people want? It definitely feels important to, to like get them to like me, <laughs> keep them liking me. And I mentioned that because I, I feel like it's helpful for us when we look at dualistic thinking, that sometimes it's this very young being that is trying to oversimplify in an effort to survive, actually. You know, we can have that compassion of like the things that develop in our early life are dependence on our adults. Um, it comes with, it's like existential baggage, you know. Well, if they don't, a sense of belonging is imperative for a, a young child or a young being. Yeah, Terrence and Natalie and I, we're talking about that in terms of Charlie, like look, here's, here's an elemental human being, completely relational, like he's completely relational. And I think some people say an infant doesn't even make a distinction between themselves and their caregivers. Um, and then I was, I can reflect in my own life of, um, and that feeling, you know, of <clears throat> dualistic thinking, like not, no, that's wrong. You're wrong. That's not right. Um, and then I was remembering, like another time for me, and I and I think it is in terms of the developmental psychology, it comes around again is in the early twenties. <laughs> it's like a new version. And similarly to when we're three, a kind of a kind of um, imperative comes around of like identity formation, making a self. Who am I in relation to this world? The world's pretty complicated and confusing this is right and that is wrong. <clears throat> so then archetypally in my mind, that's like a 20 year old who's looking at a 50 year old, like you're such a hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> or young people looking at their parents, like you're such sellouts. <laughs> and it's like, and, I, and in both cases, there's a, it's developmentally useful, you know? Like it's not, we don't, and even in our, moment you know and 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 we are always you know in any given moment we are three and a half months we are three years old we are 20 we are <clears throat> whole worlds <laughs> you know whole worlds of developmental possibility happen in a moment for us and we can have compassion then i think so if dualistic thinking is arising in me it's not actually something to trash and get rid of or feel ashamed of it's like, oh, I'm protecting something. Oh, I need the world to be smaller for some reason. And can I step back and inquire into that? What's happening? The world is a lot. <laughs> we are very vulnerable. You know, there's another thing that becomes, is, is a good reminder of being around an infant. We are very vulnerable. We are very sensitive. Sometimes people say, well, you know, it's a very sensitive child. I'm like, we all are. <laughs> Some of us might learn to pretend we're not or hide it. You know? And another lens that <clears throat> has come up for me um, in the past few weeks of looking at dualistic thinking as a tendency is, and just stay with me because 
you know, we all have our ideas about this, are, are interesting and different models of addiction um, and how they apply, actually. One model of addiction I really appreciate is offered by um, a psychiatrist named Nzinga Harrison, Dr. Nzinga Harrison. She has a podcast called In Recovery. And she, I think pretty much every time, I haven't listened to it in a while, but she'll say, her definition of addiction is continued behavior despite negative consequences. It's very interesting to me. As a, as a practitioner, it's very interesting to me. You know, um, it's not simply about substance abuse. What are the things that we continue to do that cause harm? And then we can, and then actually, it can just be interesting to use models of addiction to look at why, look at how. And then another um, model I was, I was being reminded of, I've heard of this before, um, but it, the, it was a, a friend sent it to me. I was like, you might like this. <laughs> it was a, the podcast is 10% um, happier. And he was interviewing this woman, uh, her name is Carrie Wilkins. And she's the founder of a place in, well, I know that there are centers in Manhattan called uh, Center for Motivation and Change. And their model of addiction is, um, or, or they have a really different model of addiction than a typical 12-step abstinence only kind of thing. And uh, one of the things they do is they ask people who are seeking help, uh, and, and she mainly works with people around substance abuse disorder. You know, it's probably pretty obvious how this is not working for you, <laughs> but they ask people, how is your use working for you? How is this substance use working for you? How is this drug use working for you? Because if you can, because there's this appreciation that like um, there's a need and this is working. And I say this as somebody who people very close and dear to me struggle with substance abuse disorder. So I'm not, these ideas are not in the abstract for me. There's a number of young people in my life who struggle with substance abuse disorder. My, our dear friend um, that many of you know that, that died a few weeks ago, he died of an accidental overdose uh, a few days before his 21st birthday. There are a lot of young people in my life who, um, they don't really want to be here. It's very hard to be here. And they want to feel better now, and they want to also, or they want to feel numb. Either one's fine, you know. And so I've been feeling in, in my own body in relationship to these people that I know and love, um, the karma of, well, particularly substance abuse where it's like, I want, I want it now. I want to feel better now. And the appreciation of like drugs do that. They change the situation pretty quickly, you know? And, and having compassion for that. Like, I actually don't want to put in the time. I don't want to do the work. And with Constanza this morning, I was mentioning, like, I, I often think of Soto Zen as like slow cooker enlightenment. <laughs> like, if Soto Zen appeals to you, 
you might be somebody who's like a marathoner and not a sprinter, <laughs> you know, a lifetimes of project, you know. Um, but again, like in dominant culture, it's like now, 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 you know. I, there are people in my life for whom social media does, is this now. I want to feel different now, now, now. And how compelling that is, how difficult the karma of craving is when that is a cycle we're in and really appreciating that. And maybe I will also ask that we consider like, and not moralizing about it because um, it's not a moral failing when we get caught in those cycles. It's um, very human and often neurological. And so then I was thinking about dualistic thinking almost like, like as an addiction or can be a delusion as an addiction, maybe to make it even wider. Many people, actually, there's a lot of folks who are new to Brooklyn Zen Center today, but who have been practicing a long time because I've gotten to speak to some of you and hear about your practice life. And maybe even if this is the first like Buddhist thing you're ever doing, you probably have an idea of like, oh yeah, the way that I usually think is causing some harm. Or this idea, some of my some of my thinking is uh, hard to be with. And even though we know that, though we can observe if we have a little space in our life, like oh, but I keep doing it. <laughs> uh-huh. What's up with that? And I. I feel like one of the possibilities is that um, the discomfort of uncertainty can become intolerable for us. And we want to fix it now. So we're like, I'm just going to make the world smaller. I'm going to call this the thing that I know. And then I'll relieve, it's a, you know, it's a very similar thing to like using a substance. I'll relieve the, that uncomfortable sensation, the pain of the discomfort of not knowing. And, and very similarly, like it's a known cycle. If I do that, then I'll get over there and that I might eventually have some problems, but for at least a little bit, I'll feel better. <laughs> and I mean this when we have thoughts like, oh, that person is wrong. That thing's wrong. Or, or maybe probably more often we're like, oh, I fucked up. I'm wrong. So we're not saying like, oh, whole worlds are here. <laughs> what a mystery. We're like, no, 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 no. I'm the worst or they're the worst. So this practice encouragement of non-duality is to, um, it is not, to, again, like, so we're not, not chucking out, not getting rid of stuff. Because that, if we have to get rid of something, we've made a duality. You know, if a dualistic mind is in the way, if we're like, that's not enlightenment, duality. We made the world into two things. You know? So people are like, well, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> I think one thing we can do is like, is like, just, just let, let the field be wider. Don't get rid of the dualistic thinking, but see if, if we can widen our perception around it. 
anytime we have a, a certainty, can we be like, well, where did that come from? Who told me that? Where did I get that feeling from? You know, and just and let it let the let it do its thing, you know, that it's trying to do, which is protecting from overwhelm usually. But let the field that it runs around in be spacious enough that it's like not causing damage. And this mind that does that goes like that. We have a description of that in our tradition, also from Dogen, but from a different teaching, a Tenzo Kyokun elder mind, sometimes rendered as grandmother mind, grandparental mind or parental mind. I like, I think elder mind is good. Elder mind is, is um, it's just, it's, it's one that's been through some stuff. You know, if you think of like the, like in your, for you, whether it's somebody you've known or not, but is there, can you conjure an archetype of a wise elder? And how they regard things. Maybe grandmother mind's okay because we can all embody it. It's not gendered. It's just archetypally feminine. <clears throat> Charlie, my partner who's, not here today, but he, he's at the monastery actually teaching this weekend. Um, last week he gave a talk about the Dharma and sexuality and so we, and gender. And so we've been, we've been talking about that a lot. And then I, there was some point where I feel like he turned to me and was like, I think that the patriarchy is like totally not into impermanence and death. <laughs> I was like, I think so too. <laughs> so archetypally, it is, is a grandmother mind that, that goes, um, yeah, we're impermanent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, that's me too. And it's that same mind that like when it sees a young person freaking out is like, it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> it's okay. And I think one of the ways we can... Um, work with dualistic thinking is to think of it like this, like, oh, am I in a young mind or am I in an elder mind? And, and what we can cultivate or, or nurture in ourselves is the elder mind. The image we're um, working with in, in the Genjo Koan this week, because we were like taking it in sections for the 12 weeks of the practice intensive was you know this this one about the circle of water we go out to a boat and we and there's no land in sight and so there's just a flat horizon when we were talking about this on wednesday and john was here who doesn't have sight and i was like oh but even still like what would it be like to be out on a boat where the where it's water all around and feel you know a, a circle of water um, can we know, Dogen uses this image to, to help us, not that we ever get rid of the fact that when our perception is, is a circle of water, our perception is limited to what we can see and know. So we don't get rid of that. It's not like we see everything. People are like, Buddhas see everything. I'm like, yeah, but Buddhas are also humans. You know, they show up as human beings. And when they show up as human beings, they have limited perception. 
And we can, in cultivating elder mind, we can know at the same time that I have this limited view, I know there's a bunch of stuff beyond it. So that when someone comes and says, you know, and I'm thinking about them, oh, they think this way. And they say something that's not the way I think they think. I'm not like, no, you don't think that way. <laughs> I can receive that they are different than I expected because whole worlds are there. Of course, they're different than I expected. How could I expect everything, you know? And the reason, like, like why does this matter? You know, it matters so that we can be receptive. It also matters so that we can live in reality because the truth is there are always whole worlds there. Human beings, I had this image this morning in Zazen actually of like a hourglass tipped over on its side. And each of us is like the node. And there's like all these people behind us that stream into us. And there's also all these people that stream out from us. And we're walking around like this all the time, actually, with this level of vastness. Um, earlier this week on, on Thursday night, the, our younger child goes to the Brooklyn Waldorf School and there is uh, organizing there around uprooting racism using the, the uh, People's Institute for Survival and Beyond principles, which I know has woven into Brooklyn Zen Center sometimes. And um, if you don't know that work, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> PSAB, People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. And a friend of mine there, Grace Nam, who has, I think in the past, been part of a BIPOC Sangha at Brooklyn Zen Center, but is no longer. Um, when we were sharing pronouns, shared, um, and I asked her if I could bring this here, <laughs> she said yes, um, shared she and, and working also with we, she and we. And I was like, oh yeah. When I lived in California, there was a person who had for many decades had a we and our that's, those are the first person pronouns they use for themselves as a practice engagement, as this way of recognizing that they care who, who all they are, you know? And when I asked Grace, uh, could I, was it okay to mention that in the Dharma talk? She said, yes. And she also heard of that from Miss Barbara Majors, who's one of the founding teachers in PSAB and uh, JP Pack. And I was like, great. Now the we's wider. <laughs> and we can try that on, you know. On the Dharma, in the Dharma share on Wednesday evening, we tried out uh, moving. The, there's a teaching from, I've heard that it comes from Joanna Macy, the pr a practice called milling, where you move around and then you pair up with people. And then as you are um, there across from one another, there are something that you hold in mind as you look at each other. I've done this in different settings. Like one thing is we can be across from one another, look at one another and be like, this person's gonna die. This person is impermanent and I'm impermanent. And this person is impermanent and I'm impermanent. So that we are um, in reality. And so what we tried on, on Wednesday was being across from one another and trying on whole worlds are there, as you did this morning. 
And it's not like just to be nice <laughs> or have a nice feeling or something. It's because it's true. And being in reality um, aligns us more often with uh, being free. feel so supported in uh, this practice of, of Zen to be whole. So like that, like, like, yes, there's an idea of she and him, or she, she and he, like that there's gender, there's a gender binary. I actually was thinking through like, wait, what is the social convention? Like in dominant culture, the social convention is as far as I can tell, you can let me know if you see another one. As far as I can tell, what I've been raised to do is look at someone, decide what you think that their gender is, and then project it on them without inquiring how that is for them. Like, that doesn't sound very upright. You know? To me, that doesn't sound very aligned with wholeness. And it's interesting to me in the past few years, the, the, the variety of people that are like, do we really have to keep doing the pronouns? I'm like, yeah, we have to keep doing the pronouns forever. <laughs> totally. Oh, I would say we have to keep doing the pronouns. We, we have to keep offering pronouns. We have to, because what if mine changed tomorrow? You wouldn't know unless I told you or unless you asked, unless, unless there was an opening for that. And like, and, and like, I just am not that invested in holding up this idea of like, um, I should be able to look and know and project that on you. And then my way is right, you know, which is how I experienced the conditioning I received around how we assign pronouns to people. Yeah, every time we um, open the field of awareness, like that, like I might think that this is an assignment I'm gonna give you, but I'm wondering how it is for you. Even if that person's like, if I think of them as male and they're like, yeah, I use he, him pronouns, that, well, that circle actually still got wider because there was room. And then the next day, if, it, if their pronouns are different, there's room for that too. That what I did want to uh, leave us with is a, is an image from um, one of our Charlie and my teacher Reb Anderson, who, in talking about this circle of water once, or I think maybe many times, but one that I can remember vividly, offered that if we're if we're holding tight to a circle of water being the whole of reality, we're out there in the ocean and we're like, nah, this is all there is, and a whale comes through. What happens? Yeah. There's a lot of a cultural conditioning I receive that, that basically says like, don't look at it. You know, like go to the other side of the boat and be like, you can't be here. It, the, you're too big for this circle. Don't look at the whale, pretend you don't see it. And I can name some of the whales <laughs> were death, 
history, like an accurate history of the land I was on, sexuality. But if we, um, we're seeing the circle of water and we're including, yeah, but this is a limited view and there's always more out there than I could ever know. Then a whale comes through and we're like, thank you. I knew it. I knew there were whales. And we can receive it as a gift and not a threat to our reality. I think it was also Constanza, sorry to keep putting you on the spot, who mentioned uh, positive disintegration, which now I'm remembering someone I have looked at before. So I just wanna maybe just say those words, positive disintegration, <laughs> the positive dis dissolution of the impact of conditioning that makes us smaller than what we are. So that we can uh, really care for ourselves primarily as the ground all the time, and then move into the world and care for the world in reality. Every person we meet is a precious, fleeting moment, yeah. including ourselves. And we can actually, I, I don't experience culture in the United, the dominant culture in the United States lifting that up. I, I experience it, it actually like the opposite, that um, it's like, don't look at the whale of that person's amazingness and that person and that person. Don't look at the whale of, your, of my own, the profundity of like, what are we even doing here? How did this happen? So we have this, beautiful practice where we sit really still and we look like nothing's happening <laughs> and we know like whole worlds are happening and then we sit with them and we just just it's okay be be still be receptive and train in being okay with the whales of that come as you sit today and always thank you so much for being here May our intention penetrate Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.